Kate, owner of 123, a business dedicated to supporting leaders who want to be their best selves every day. Leading is hard work, but the chairs here at 123 are comfy. So please have a seat and join the conversation. Welcome back to the Comfy Chairs. I had the privilege of hosting a conversation about Susan Cain's latest book, Bittersweet, with Michelle. Michelle and I have worked together off and on for the last 15 years. And during that time, she has been a coworker, mentor, consultant, and trusted confidant. So it's no surprise that we had a very long conversation about this book and our own experiences with bittersweetness. It was pretty wonderful. This does mean, though, that rather than publishing a single episode, I've split this particular topic into multiple, shorter installments. You can look for the remaining episodes over the next two weeks. Think of these as bite-sized, bittersweet conversations. So I think the first question I would have for you is, how do you want to be introduced? How do I want to be introduced? I mean, you can introduce me as your longtime friend, mm-hmm. your, your, I don't know. We have kind of a history, so. We do have. We, we do. Have, um, have a history I'm very grateful for. Same, same. Yeah. I think what I would want to highlight about how I know you is, yes, we've worked together and I've been fortunate to be able to count you as a friend, but you're somebody from whom I'm always learning. You have a really deep expertise in helping people understand how they react to difficult situations. You've given me that guidance, and I've seen you guide and coach other people. I think you're also an expert who who doesn't take herself too seriously. Like You take the work seriously, but not you, and it means that you're a lot of fun to work with. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Too. That means a lot to me because that actually is... That rings with who I want to be. Thanks. Oh, you are more welcome. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, when I was, when I started reading this book and was like, this is something I have to talk about. I thought of you because one of the things I feel you and I have had the privilege of kind of exploring together through our time working together, the training that we've participated in is that Am I aware of how I come across? Mm-hmm. Am I showing up the way I want to? Um, and am I compassionate about what people are going through in the world around us? Right. Right. Yeah. The training we've been through, the training we've delivered. Exactly. The training we've participated in, yeah. all of that. Yes. And that is, those are questions that we've asked ourselves, asked mm-hmm. each other, asked about other leaders. Yeah. You know? feedback we've given each other mm-hmm. you know, I can think about yeah you've you've helped me see the times that I haven't been my best self same I would say the same about you you've helped me to see even in watching in in watching your model of being someone who's conscientious about the work product that they're putting out in the world and yeah, we. I think we, in our work together, when we did work together, we really complemented each other. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I've been poorly introducing, but just talking to <laughs> my friend and long-term colleague, Michelle, who has uh, 
what, 25 years of experience mm-hmm. on the administrative side of healthcare rather than the clinical. Is currently working as an independent consultant with a system here in the States. And we have kind of done a book club with each other, if you will, having read, and we're here to discuss Bittersweet by Susan Cain, her mm-hmm. latest publication. Yes. Which is magnificent. And now it's a good chance for us to talk about it. For you, what were the big takeaways? There's a the quiz. Did you take the quiz? I did. Okay. So I also took the quiz and I was... I would not have described myself as an adult person or even as a young person. I would not describe myself as melancholic, but clearly I was wrong because the very first question is, do you tend to tear up or, you know, do uh-huh. you tend to cry at touching commercials? And I have been crying about Peter coming home at Christmas oh, right? since I was like in sixth grade. Like I'm like, Peter comes home and makes the coffee. It's Christmas time. Like yeah. here it is, Peter, you're home. <laughs> and yeah. Folgers and, and Hallmark. Folgers. Exa- every time. Every time. Oh. Every time yeah. I cry every year when Peter gets home at Christmas. So, and you know, all the Super Bowl commercials that are really touching and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get to me. So, so the first question I was like, yeah, I'm screwed. I mean, clearly. <laughs> right. And it just went down from there. Um, just for my own curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your score? It was 7.8. What was yours? Eight. Okay. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and I was really surprised and I was very honest because I don't, I'm not touched by old photographs. I was like a five on that one Mm -hmm. because I'm not really especially, I mean, I'm, when I, when I see old photographs, like in a museum or something, I think, oh, I wonder what it was like to be those people, Mm -hmm. you know, at that time and what were they going through? Um, But I'm not especially moved like emotionally by, by them. I'm just kind of curious. I would say it was, I'm curious, not moved. Um, but some of the some of the other questions I don't remember all the questions. I just remember that first one. The are you moved to goosebump several times a day? See, no, I wouldn't. That one I was like, no, two. No, no, not so much. Yeah, like I was like a three on that one. But there were several others that I was a ten. Mm-hmm. Do you know that what the author C.S. Lewis meant when he described joy as a sharp, wonderful stab? One hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Ten. Absolutely. Ten 100%. out of ten. So it'd probably be good for me to define terms a little bit. Um, you mentioned melancholy. We've mm-hmm. talked about the word poignant, mm-hmm. but specifically uh, bittersweet, name of the book, central concept, is defined as a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. And it's and it's interesting to consider because I, I have three children. I've never been a person that is like, oh my gosh, they're going to kindergarten. It's so terrible. Like, mm-hmm. stop growing up because I wanted them to become cool adult people in the world and they have. So I'm not a sentimental person, but I do I do have a longing for other, mm-hmm. not necessarily the past, but a longing for better, yeah. more, different. I think it's it's this awareness that even if things are moving exactly as planned, right? Like your children are growing. Mm-hmm. Like they, oh, they're growing. They're getting bigger. Great. You're doing your job as a parent. Yep. You're doing an exceptionally good job as a parent if they end up as cool people in the world. Yep. There can still be this sense of, you know, we're never going to have this moment at the park again. And that's fine. Right. But it's gone. Yes. The big concepts in the book are around sorrow, loss, and impermanence. Mm-hmm. And how those are just one side of our equations. Right. I was particularly, I don't know if interested, I was particularly 
conscious of the conversation around the movie Inside Out. So she, she yeah. has that whole conversation in the book about the movie Inside Out and that the original story had fear as mm-hmm. the counterpart to joy as opposed to sadness, which I didn't know any of that previous to reading this book because I saw the movie in its final production. And that and the the sentence that got me the most was when she said that the writer of the movie realized that fear had nothing to teach joy. Yeah. And I thought, wow, because fear is still a character, mm-hmm. but not the central character the way that sadness is. It was sadness that taught joy about compassion and connection and and loss and longing and impermanence. Yeah. Um, and the and the freedom to understand impermanence. The, same for me. That fear had nothing to teach her. Whoa. Right. And how I in some ways I felt um kind of like nailed to the spot on that mm-hmm. because because I I know personally I let fear rule a lot of things in my life. You know, whether it's anxiety mm-hmm. as opposed to terror, but fear is kind of a constant companion. And to realize because I th- I really think that what they discovered making that movie is true. We don't learn from fear. It can keep us safe. Right. But that's not learning. Right. Right. In fact, the ultimate goal of safety is to have no change happen to you. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And we don't go through life that way. Right. But what can teach us are the things that make us feel longing. It's It's been an interesting way to kind of, you know, wake up and think differently. Yeah. And I think the thing that, I remember the most about that movie that I remember reflecting on at the end of the movie was it's not that sadness became joy. Sadness was still sadness. Exactly the same. The blue character that she was kind mm-hmm. of the Eeyore mentality. Yep. Um, but joy made peace with her. Mm-hmm. Joy made peace with sadness. And I think that's the, that's one of the like lessons of the book is that we have to make peace with our sadness. Yeah. It, I, I was always really struck in that movie that, you know, Joy didn't want anything to do with sadness. You know, she thought she was, you know, the wet blanket on the exactly. party. Exactly. Like, just leave us alone. Like, come yeah. on. And when, when there was that moment where the emotions could be blended, where sadness and joy could be with each other, that made, that made everyone's life richer. You know, it's not about, well, I'm going to handle you and put you away because it makes me feel bad. Instead, it's, how much richer our inner and outer lives are mm-hmm. when we have a whole palette of emotions right. available to us. That big moment where joy recognizes that sadness brings other people to you. Right. When there's sadness, people come there to care for you. And without that, we don't have those connections. And I think when all of our emotions have their their place is mm-hmm. is really kind of self-actualization right when all of those emotions have their place that's when we reach that point and we're not trying to fight with them Kane's book I think really talks about this idea of you know positive everything Mm -hmm. has to be positive all the time and the struggle of that of like then I have to fight with my fear my anxiety my disgust my sadness Mm -hmm. my anger I have to I have to like you know keep it at bay because nobody wants to see that in American culture so to speak so well that's the other Susan of this book is Susan David right? talking about emotional agility. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember which, whether it's Susan Cain, the author 
if it's her term or if she's quoting Susan David, but that idea of the tyranny of positivity. I think that was Susan David. That was something I highlighted. Right. Because it does feel like you, you've got to got to put on a happy face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to go smile. There's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa's really struggling. She's feeling kind of sad. Yeah. And Marge doesn't know how to help her yeah. and tells her just to smile and mm-hmm. drops her off at school and is watching her walk into school struggling to keep the smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And Marge realizes, no, this isn't what I want for my daughter. Right. And, you know, like squeals up <laughs> right. and tells her, if you need to be sad, be sad. Yeah. If you need, you know, if you're ready to be happy, be happy. I'll love you no matter what. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I wish, you know, we were raised in a generation that didn't tell us that we were kind of, you know, as some of the some of the social media talk about we're the last fair last of the feral generation <laughs> yes. right and and uh you know it's a suck it up suck mm-hmm. it up buttercup i mean that's yeah. latchkey yeah exactly figure it out figure it out exactly and yeah. i think the one thing i would say about my young adult children is i i've done better as they became adults than i did when they were younger because as a parent i was like you're okay you're fine it's okay it's okay mm-hmm. you're okay and i and i think i could have done a better job of helping them to manage those various emotions um so well it's you know don't be too hard on yourself because you know as a young parent right you haven't necessarily learned those lessons correct that's very yes how can you teach your children something you don't know right right I think if I you know at in my early 50s if I was a parent now Mm -hmm. I would do it differently and I hope I do hope that parents in this next generation are doing it differently because mm-hmm. I think there is a lot to be known about mental health and psychology and and yeah. how to manage all of the emotions as opposed to just being like drive mm-hmm. you know get it done be competitive and you know win yeah. win win so yep smile like you mean it smile like you mean it fake it till you make it fake it yes <laughs> never let them see you sweat never, exactly yes yeah. those all, are wildly unhealthy <laughs> wildly unhealthy yeah and so yeah, interesting. Yeah, I follow like a quote of the day posted on LinkedIn. And they had one that was all about how, you know, it's not perfectionism. I set my market perfect, like beyond perfect, so that all of my results are then great. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating watching the responses to that. Interesting. Um, yeah. You know, as a, I did not see any comments that were like, totally agree. This is awesome. It was wow, this is not okay. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. You know, I, I'm working with a lot of um, younger people in the consulting world. There's a lot of young, you know, new mm-hmm. associates as they're called. And so I get to kind of be this um, mentor. That's not r- what I'm getting paid for, but it's still just part of the role. And some of the other consultants that are my age will say things, you know, behind their back, so to speak, but they'll say, you know, kids these days mm. and they don't want to work like we did. And, you know, they want to make sure they have their after five o'clock time. And, and I listened to this for a little bit. And I finally said to one of the gentlemen, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I do want to kind of counterbalance the view a little bit for you. Because when you look at our generation, most of us are overweight, we're sleep deprived, we have anxiety that's undiagnosed, we have type two diabetes, heart disease, many mm-hmm. other things, you know, liver problems. Um, I don't know that we're doing it right. So I think that 
allowing the next generation to figure that out in a healthier way, maybe the best way to do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, you know, how the memory, the memory always serves us. Sure. Like, you know, you're always the, the victor or, you know, the, the hero or the appropriate victim in your memories because, okay, 50 year old, 15 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. when you were 35, when you, you know, or 20 years ago, yeah, 25 years ago, you, when you were new in your career, where you were establishing a family, a social life, you didn't have as many responsibilities at work. Right. You did prioritize some of those things that were outside of the office. Yes. And that change happened gradually. It didn't happen overnight. So now that you're in this place of, Oh, kids these days. Right. You. It's so easy to forget. Oh, I was a kid. Yes, exactly. You were a kid. You yeah. were prioritizing different things. And and every generation has the, the mm. moment where they say kids these days. I'm sure I've said something about the, this generation, right? Well, it's it's funny. This is very timely because the, the episode that's going to publish before this one, um, I'm talking with a, a young professional in his 30s mm-hmm. about generational differences. Mm-hmm. And in some of the research I did for that, um, there are these these quotes that are like, I just don't know what's wrong with the young people of this day. They don't respect their elders and, you know, they only focus on, you know, pursuing pleasure and partying. And these are quotes that come from like 6,000 BC. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Even before there was like Gen X or teeny boppers or any sort of label. For a generation. Yeah. 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 That it was like, oh, kids these days. Yeah. Jeez, they're awful. So apparently there is nothing new under the sun, right? The mm-hmm. the kids these days um, ethos is apparently alive and well in every generation since well, the yeah. beginning of time. And I, it's to tie it back to this, it's that sense of time is going really fast. What I have is not going to last. And for some people, there's a sweetness mm-hmm. to looking at people who are younger and remembering Oh, I had that time where my body didn't hurt when I woke up in the morning. Yeah, I didn't get sleep injuries. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, that I didn't have as many responsibilities. I wasn't trying to figure out what it was going to look like in retirement. And instead of cherishing that and celebrating it for those those people that get to have that, you know, their youth is wasted on the young. Mm -hmm. Some people are bitter about it. Right. Right. And, you know, the the fear part, I think, overtakes. Yeah. Yeah. When we were talking about, you know, fear and anger, what I was, what, what came to mind for me um, was Maslow's hierarchy. Because mm-hmm. you talked about self-actualization, mm-hmm. which is the pinnacle. Right. right. When we're, when we're dealing with the foundation of that pyramid, our physical safety um, you know, the basics, do I have shelter? Do I have food? Mm-hmm. Am I not going to die? Our our emotions are kind of binary and they are focused on things like fear. As we go up, we start getting closer to belonging. Yeah. Which carries in it a sense of longing. Yes. And being able to get to a place where we are actualized and our emotions 
um, are integrated and they're aligned with our actions, mm-hmm. it, it is you have to move away from fear. Right. And I and I think that it's it's interesting that you say that because I'm, you know, I haven't been frequently as an adult anyway in a position where I had to fear for my basic fundamental, you know, right. health, safety, et cetera. Um, and so then where does fear come from for someone that's privileged and has all of their needs met either by themselves or by others? Right. I, yeah. I don't, I haven't had that experience as an adult. And so where does that fear come from? Stress. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we could, we could have our you know non-clinical discussion about you know cortisol overload sure. and the amygdala hijack, but the modern world's really stressful. It is, yeah, it really is, and well, it perpetuates yeah. itself. I mean, islands are on fire. There's hurricanes in places of the country that there aren't supposed to be, and that's just the natural stuff coming from like the weather and the climate. That's right. Not, that doesn't even include the politics and the guns and the mm-hmm. you know fill in the blank. So yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things. I wanted us to spend some time talking about today because mm-hmm. that, you know, that sorrow, loss, longing, one of the things that Kane talks about is grief. Mm. And the notes that I made for myself uh, around how it is, it is entirely possible and I think even natural for us to grieve things we haven't had. Mm. And... The last few years, there's been a lot of what if, I think, for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, with job loss or illness and yeah. the things that pe- you know, many of us thought were right at hand for us never, never materialized. Right. So I think we're living with a lot of pandemic grief outside of the people got really sick and died. Yeah. That there's, where was the world headed three years ago? Right. That we're never going to get that back. Right. And how do we mend ourselves after that? Yeah. I think, I'm sure some of what you're ta- you're thinking about too is the conversation that Susan Kane has about her mother and grieving the loss of the relationship with her mother, mm-hmm. but her mother's still alive. So how do you grieve how do you grieve the loss of someone that's still here? How do you grieve the loss of things that were still there, but weren't mm-hmm. entirely there? And I think that's a good parallel. That's a good way to think about and a good parallel to grief from the pandemic, because those of us that did survive, mm-hmm. um, what is there to grieve? We were lucky. Like we were the lucky ones, right? Yep. Or we were the fortunate or we were the, who knows whatever whatever label you're going to put on yourself for having come out on the other side of that yeah um survivor's guilt yeah exactly but also yeah and then and does the survivor have a right to grieve that's the, that's the question right does the survivor have a right to grieve what happened oh. and the answer has to be yes of course because we can't not grieve it's just part of the human mm-hmm. condition but what exactly are we grieving yeah and if we if we deny ourselves grief, what are the long term implications for that? Yeah, you know. So there's surviving the pandemic. Um, before, during, and after the pandemic, we've seen a lot of job loss, mm-hmm. and you talk about survivor's guilt for people who come to work and they didn't get 
the email that their job is gone. Right. Yep. What do those people have to grieve? They're still employed. Well, yeah. They're grieving the relationships. Yep. The loss of their friend that used to be sitting in the cubicle mm-hmm. next to them or in the office next to them. And yeah, they're grieving what they knew because it's now different. They've mm-hmm. had that loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may not be much to learn from it, but there's fear then. So right. it puts them into that, you know, that amygdala state of how do I protect myself? Right. And we've been in that, in that, um, I guess I would call it like the am I next mm-hmm. question, both with the illness of the pandemic and our jobs, right? Yeah. Because am I, you know, am I getting COVID next? Am I, mm-hmm. could I die from it? Um, and then am I next to have my job eliminated or my yeah be told I have to work from home when I don't want to or whatever or I have to go or I have to come back into the office when I don't want to yeah that's a that's a fascinating yeah what was your next big takeaway favorite thing there was a part where she was talking about concerts and Mm -hmm. um you know like the almost like the spiritual feeling that you get and Mm -hmm. I and I had this memory years ago. I saw Prince at the Nutter Center. Oh, yeah. And I'm so, and I went because a friend bought a ticket and then bought two tickets for her and her boyfriend and then they broke up and mm-hmm. she couldn't find somebody else to go with. And so, and I remember th- watching the audience and it was like they were at church. I mean, they were worshiping yes. this individual. And and I had that thought of like, this is better than church for them. Like, yeah. this is better than church. This is a spiritual moment for these individuals watching Prince and and then I also wrote down in my notes Taylor Swift because I went to the Taylor Swift concert in. Oh, in, did you? I did. <laughs> I did. I'm not a Swifty. My no. daughter has called me a Swifty in training. So she was constantly like giving me the the updates and um, <laughs> the thing that struck me. And again, this is this is the Paycor Stadium. 65,000 people inside the stadium, 20,000 additional people outside of the stadium. Most of them me not one of them and other people I could tell but most people in there scream singing the lyrics right they mm-hmm. are screaming my daughter reminded me like remember I used to dance to this song when I was in first grade right and she's 20 now so this so she's grown up with this individual as kind of a model of love loss impermanence grief right like I when I was at that concert I also had that same thing of like this is a spiritual moment for these people this is a spiritual moment um, in terms of this this young woman and her performance and like being a part of it yeah. and so I think um euphoria euphoria and and also bittersweet because it was three hours and then it was over yeah and for most of us we're not getting that again I mean we might go to another Taylor Swift concert but we're not getting that moment on July 1st mm-hmm. at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati Ohio right we're not that's not coming back one of the things that's interesting at the Taylor Swift concert, you know, what you get when you walk in is this bracelet that has an LED light in it. And one of the things that happens throughout the concert is the lights light up. There's a visual realization of everyone in the same space. I mean, besides mm-hmm. the fact that you're seeing everyone, you're also seeing like when it got dark enough, these flashing LED lights, there's no mistaking that you are part of something freaking huge. And you know, because we're talking about leadership and leadership development, mm-hmm. and I'm s- apparently a leadership nerd. <laughs> one of the things that I literally thought multiple times during that concert was it is very clear when you're watching that concert, the entire show, the entire three hours, 
that it is her vision and these other 12 people or 15 people that are constantly there are there to make her look good Mm -hmm. and they do and she is publicly appreciative of that somebody should study taylor swift as a ceo because that is what i saw on the stage was a really strong leader that all of these people are here to make her job come to life and and it's it's evident as someone who's kind of a leadership (laughs) nerd like it's it's evident that that's what's happening that's really fascinating michelle i think that is that is interesting to think of that as a leadership model We've reached a good stopping point, so I'll leave you here. During the next episode, Michelle challenges me with this question. I hate to say this, but I think the thing that always challenges me when I read books like this is the self-indulgent. Until then, I hope you're able to pause and find a little bitter and sweet in your own life.